0: hey y'all oscar here just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of we like movies it really does us a solid if you give us a rating a review a subscribe on itunes check us out on stitcher we're even on spotify now so we appreciate your continued support just help us spread the word happy 2019 what are we waiting for Let me have your attention for a
1: moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business.
0: Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh?
1: I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too read Will. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Martin. Who are you working for? The Knutsins. Who, who the f are the Knutsens? He's a big movies think about big men. In tights! Roll that mother f- camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass! Yeah! We like movies! This is business and this man has taken it very, very personal.
0: Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthias K. Knudsen, and this is We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 64. Network, Matt. Here, you're a little upset. You want want to tell us a little more about that?
1: You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Dahl, and I won't have it. Is that clear? (laughs) You think you've merely stopped a business deal? This is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It's ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It's ecological balance. You're an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems, one vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational, dominion of dollars, petrodollars dollars, multi-dollars, Reichmarks, Rinds, Rubles, Pounds, and Shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature and you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Dahl? You get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and ATT and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. They are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their Councils of State. Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, minimax solutions, and compute the priced cost probabilities of their transactions and investments just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Dahl. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Dahl. It has been since man crawled out of the slime, and our children will live, Mr. Dahl, to see that perfect world, in which there's no war, famine, oppression, or brutality, one vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock all necessities provided all anxieties tranquilized all boredom amused and i have chosen you mr doll to preach this evangel is it because i'm on tv or i have a podcast (laughs) (laughs) you're on television dummy yes because you have a podcast thank you that's better (laughs) Yeah. Um, Thank you for indulging I'm gonna give you, I'm going to give you a B, B minus. <laughs> <laughs> I may have to uh, edit that up a little bit. But me, <laughs> I, I have fantasies about someday uh, writing a book about something or other, and then I have further fantasies about being able to uh, narrate that book myself for Audible, but I'm not sure if I can do it. I'll tell you what, it's harder It's harder than it sounds to uh, to read and speak simultaneously.
0: You know, this is a good start because I think a lot of people would say the key scene and the and, and their favorite scene and the most iconic scene, obviously, is the uh, mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore, the Howard Beale sort of rant. But uh, for my money, the Ned Beatty scene is my favorite scene in the entire film, uh, a film chock full of just... Incredible moments. Uh, he fucking steals the show, and I I know, uh, what's her face? Uh, Beatrice, straight. Beatrice Strait won the Oscar for about five minutes of screen time. I would have rather it been Ned Beatty for having, what, three minutes of screen time and then uh, learning that uh, that rants, that four-page rants in, in, in one night being called in.
1: Technically, Ned Beatty is on screen for five minutes and 53 seconds. Okay. That okay. includes him, like, obviously, you know, walking into the room, walking out of the room. Beatrice Strait has five minutes and two seconds of screen time, and she won an Oscar for that, which I believe is still a record. But your point is well taken. They're both comparable... I mean, they both were nominated for, you know, less than six minutes of screen
0: time apiece. Yeah, it's uh it's incredible. So fuck Matt Network, Sidney Lumet, Patty Chavsky, a lot to frickin bite into here. But let's start with uh, when did you first see this movie and where has this movie sort of been in your mind for the last you know, 20, 25 years?
1: This is one of my f- probably 30 favorite films of all time. I probably watch it uh, at least two or three times a year and have done so for probably the last 20 years 25 years or so I have a sneaking suspicion that this movie probably came onto my radar right around the time that it landed on the original AFI list Okay, and it would have been number 66 at the time Mm -hmm. and I was familiar with it but obviously for a number of reasons this is a very adult film right yes adult themes adult situations adult relationships you know satire from you know on a very sophisticated level and uh, you know it's still an R rated movie and uh, as a result it wouldn't exactly been like playing on, you know, AMC and the Knutson household when I was a child, even though my parents both quoted it all the time and they both had nothing but um, great things to say about it. I'm pretty darn sure that round about 97 or so when it landed on the original list was when I, re- I decided it was required viewing and I saw it. And even at the tender age of whatever I was, 14, 15 years old, it still absolutely blew my hair back and floored me. And I think it hasn't aged a day. If anything, I think it's only gotten more and more relevant, which I know is not a crazy revolutionary thing to say. You know, a lot of people sort of look at this film as being the, you know, Patty Chayefsky's opinions on these matters as being sort of like the presage of reality television. Maybe this movie even predicted Fox in its own way because UBS in the context of this film is the fourth network. That's what Fox mm-hmm. became in the 80s, right? And yeah. And appealed to sort of like this lowbrow... Audience who were, you know, kind of angry. Yeah. So uh, in that regard, yeah, it does seem just as relevant today as it probably did in 1976. And I actually was fortunate enough to get to see Lee Hall's recent ad- uh, stage adaptation of Network with Brian Cranston and Tony Goldwyn and Tatiana Meslani in on Broadway. And it was interesting. I I'll, I'll get into that deeper a little bit later. Um, but my biggest issue with the play, as opposed to the film, is that. The play really leans into the Howard Beale stuff because you have Brian Cranston playing this role, right? Yeah. So what I think the movie does so brilliantly is it really is a triptych between these three very strong, fascinating characters. And it kind of spends equal time on them, whereas the play is just, it's just kind of like the Cranston show. And don't get me wrong. I love Cranston, but I think that was a mistake because I don't think this movie is explicitly about Howard Beale. I don't think the story is explicitly about Howard Beale. Let's put it that way. Even though the opening narration says this is a story
0: about, how yeah. <laughs> he feels, <so. laughs> well, he kind of dis- disappears. I mean, he sort of stops evolving in the in the second half of the movie. The uh, Ned Beatty scene being the one big pivot for him, but he sort of does fall by the wayside and become more of a static character. Um, but l- let's get back to this movie's you know prescience because. I think especially nowadays it's it is not a revelation like you said to 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 proclaim that this movie is more relevant than it's ever been but I think it's instructive and interesting to get into whether that that's sort of by luck and happenstance or if you know Mr. Chayefsky really saw all of this coming which I I I doubt he did I, I believe he was sort of Talking about the present when this was going on, you know, reading into it, he was talking about the sensationalism of of war coverage and just news in general. And I'm not necessarily sure that he had any idea about reality television or even, you know, Jerry Springer type talk shows in the 90s and especially uh, 24 hour cable news networks. I don't know. I mean, do you think his genius has sort of become it's been maybe blown into sort of hyperbolic realms over the years? And he certainly was a screenwriting master, but I'm not sure he's uh, he's some some oracle that saw every single thing coming like like some of his acolytes might, you know, might offer up. Right.
1: I do believe he's a genius. I do believe he's probably one of the five greatest American screenwriters of all time. Um, Oracle, no, not necessarily. I mean, if you you, you look back on um, at interviews with Lumet and Patty Chayefsky and even Lumet being interviewed uh, during the original AFI top 100 list, he says they never approached this as satire. He says, we were just reporting on what was going on in the world at this time. He says, it's just a reflection of media and corporate cultures in the 1970s. So I don't think they were trying to do anything. They weren't trying to predict the future. And, you know, I'm sure this probably seemed pretty damn revolutionary in 1976, but they both maintained that it was supposed to be a reflection of the now, not a uh, look forward towards what this could potentially become.
0: It's become way more, uh, it's become more real, you know, viewing it through, you know, current 2019, uh times and culture right like it had to have seemed more farcical and over the tile over the top than it does now now it just seems like right on with exactly what we've been seeing in the media right
1: george clooney um apparently toyed with the idea of doing a live version of network uh back in the early 2000s right around the time when he did uh fail safe Sure. Which is very interesting. It's actually another Sidney Lumet movie. So if you're interested, maybe check out both versions, the Sidney Lumet version of Failsafe and then Clooney's live version, which is fascinating. Anyway, he, he was he was obsessed with this live television stuff um, probably right around the time that he left E.R. And he well, wanted because E.R. did it. Exactly. E.R. had a very, very effective uh, live episode. And so he wanted to maybe do this thing live. He was kind of toying with it. So he he um, he screened network for a bunch of kids. He screened network for a bunch of like teens and twenty somethings, and I don't know two thousand four, two thousand five, something like that. And he noticed that none of them were laughing. And it wasn't that it wasn't because they didn't get it. It was because it didn't seem crazy. You know, it didn't seem farcical. It didn't seem over the top. It just seemed normal, right? Mm-hmm. And so he eventually decided against it because he thought that uh, you, you couldn't get the same kind of reaction out of an audience out of a you know a young hip audience these days the way you could in the 1970s sure i think the play has kind of disproven that i mean having gone to see the play and seeing the way people react to it and at the end of the play they um they have as they show a bunch of news clips and they show the last they show every they show the inauguration of every single president since 1976 from glenn glenn ford uh, from uh, Gerald Ford on mm-hmm. and just listening to the way the audience reacts positively and negatively to those various inaugurate, and then people started screaming at each other in the theater. I thought people were going to start, I thought people were going to throw down. I'm like, okay, people are mad as hell and, they, and, they, yeah. and they're not going to take it anymore still. You know, maybe now more than ever.
0: Yeah, so I mean, no spoiler here. Like, I fucking love this movie. I, I agree with you. It should be higher on the list. I, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I've definitely seen it a number of times and it, it yeah. has become more more prescient and i i feel more passionate about this movie now than i ever have and you know part of that's just the the pure craft of it you know just the way patty doles out the story and just how 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 perfect it all goes and how how much conflict he rings out of every scene and you know why while some critics might say that just devolves into shouting matches and pretty much every scene the, the the motivations for each character are so freaking clear throughout and you understand where everyone's coming from narratively it just works perfectly but as sort of a cultural touchstone i was just this last viewing just just sort of blown away by how this is just representative how how much of a clear-eyed view of our current society this thing is and uh you know it it feels like this should be required viewing for for everyone especially people whose whose brains are being muddied and you know, turned to suit by uh, by Fox News and MSNBC and everything else.
1: I, I just think it's it's one of the greatest reflections of uh, not just American media, but maybe even just you know American culture or the idea of Americana for that matter that's ever been committed to film. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned that it's it's angry and that the, it's comprised of a lot of shouting matches, and I think. I think you're right about that and I think that's obviously going to be part and parcel of any film that's going to deal with righteous indignation like this does, right? Mm -hmm. But it's so fucking well written. I mean you really can see the direct lineage from Patty Chayefsky to Aaron Sorkin, right? And Chayefsky is obviously Aaron Sorkin's hero. And, you know, quite possibly Aaron Sorkin's masterpiece has the word network in it. And that is not, that is completely by design. The name of the book that he based that screenplay on does not have the word network in it. So (laughs) that that is no coincidence. And so You really can see the seeds being sown for the kind of sophistication that would develop throughout Sorkin's career. And I really think Sorkin, I really think Chayefsky more so than David Mamet, for example, is I think Sorkin is sort of like the heir apparent to Chayefsky. I know a lot of people aren't crazy about Sorkin and that they feel his stuff is perhaps a little cute, a little precious, a little Mm -hmm. um, ornate, a little flowery. But I think you and I just happen to really respond to that kind of writing. Like, I'm not looking for verisimilitude in my dialogue. You know, like, I like a little bit of ornamentation. I also don't look for verisimilitude in my cinematography. I want movies to look like movies. I want the lighting to be beautiful or at least dramatic, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel the same way. I don't need movies to look like life, so I don't need them to sound like life either because they shouldn't be. They're theatrical. They're movies. They're larger than life. They're aspirational in their own way, right? So guys like Chayefsky and Sorkin write the way we wish we could talk.
0: And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, there's a full spectrum of this kind of writing. You know, for, for Sorkin himself... You know, you have the West Wing, which is the good version, which is a good setting for his sort of tone. And then you have Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which yes. was absolutely the wrong place. And I think, you know, the newsroom uh, between is kind of between that. I'm not a huge fan of the newsroom, but, uh, you know, I, I love West Wing and I pretty much love, without exception, every one of... Sorkin's screenplays uh, but you know this Patty Chaevsky screenplay is is the perfect distillation of that kind of writing and and I think you're right I think just the the, the hyperbole of the story and of the characters lends itself to this kind of dialogue and uh, you're right like I, I don't need people to speak like real people I I, I love the the verbosity <laughs> of every character here and how indignant and angry they all are in a movie about how indignant and angry everyone is, right?
1: Indignant, angry, and eloquent. That's my yes. kind of dialogue. <laughs> of course. Speaking of Studio 60, did you did you actually watch Studio T- It only ran for one season. Did you watch the entire first season of Studio oh, 60? Oh, yeah.
0: Not yeah. only did I watch it, I covered it for, uh, for work, my work at Buddy TV, yeah.
1: <laughs> the pre-credits, the opening, um, what do they call it, the cold open of the pilot of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip is basically a recreation of the Howard Beale rant, right? And they even yes. reference Howard Beale multiple times. And mm-hmm. it gets so so on the nose it gets so specific that it basically lays out all the reasons why this show is not going to work going forward right 12 pretty excruciating well probably more than that probably more like 20 excruciating episodes i can't even remember at this point i've sort of blocked that show.
0: i think i got a full 23 episode (laughs) run first (laughs) season run yeah exactly and it was excruciating because you know unlike 30 rock uh they decided to actually he decided to write skits (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would exist in the show. That was, yes. that, I think, that was his worst decision when it came to Studio 60. Yeah, but it's interesting. Like, I, I even watched a video uh, I think yesterday or two days ago about Sorkin's sort of screenwriting techniques, and uh, the, one of the big focuses was on how. Uh, at the beginning of every story, he has a, basically a catastrophic failure for his protagonist, right? Mm-hmm. And you can directly link that to, or, or, or sort of a a breakdown from the protagonist, and you can definitely link that to to network. And you see it in you know Social Network. He he loses Rooney Mara. Charlie Wilson's War is kind of different because uh, it's more about Gus uh, losing, but. Uh, even Molly's game you know she she sort of is down in the dumps at the beginning but sure. you you kind of you kind of need that for uh just narratively for for your for your protagonist to have sort of a a hole to dig out of and a, and a goal going forward but it, it it works so well in network and just the the fucking plot machinations at the beginning of this movie its crazy how many times people get fired and rehired within the first 35 <laughs> yes. minutes of this movie right and it just yeah. seems so normal but it, but it, you know if you sort of read just the beat by beat on on paper it might be like okay this is a little this is a little much this yo-yoing but the way it's laid out in network is is sort of perfect and it really keeps the ball rolling and what could have be you know a lot of first acts can be sort of boring setup
1: well you, and you completely understand why Sorkin kept going back to this television well the and by television well I mean using the internal drama of producing television yeah. as his stage right he like you said he did it with studio 60 he did it with the newsroom and he did it with sports night right yeah, so and far. Even, even,
0: the, even the West Wing is the same thing in some <laughs> way, <laughs> sure. where you're the internal production of politics, right?
1: Exactly, so that's what Network is set against that stage, and if you were to just kind of like read about, you know, the setting for this movie, having not seen it, and you, if you, honestly, if you even were to just watch the first, I don't know, maybe eight minutes of the movie, you might be a little put off by the fact that this seems like it's going to be pretty dry, yeah. you know, like, the opening is a bunch, is you know, is kind of like a split, a split screen situation with a bunch of network broadcasts. You have this very dry, very strange, very ominous voiceover narration. You get a couple of drunk old guys having a conversation on the street of New York. And then you have this very strange, very kind of flat opening credit sequence. And that really speaks to Lumet's approach here not only visually but also kind of tonally if if you read about Lumet's approach he basically decided he wanted to make the movie as like kind of flat and lifeless and sort of naturalistic as he could at the beginning. And then as things got weirder and crazier and more over the top, you'll notice his lighting gets bigger, his, his camera, you know, his compositions become much more formal. The -hmm. movie moves away, it moves from naturalism to a a more like hyper cinematic aesthetic by the end when things go completely over the top. And that's, it's, it's kind of subtle, but it's also indicative of, of Lumet's brilliance. I mean, Lumet really is one of the most, underrated stylists of his generation, because he's always thought of as being, you know, such an actor's director and such kind of like a formal, excuse me, such kind of like a journeyman rather in terms of the kinds of scripts he approached and the way that he approached them. But if you really watch this, you know, even the later stuff like uh, before the devil knows you're dead, I mean, the Mm -hmm. guy really had a grasp of style uh, all his own dog, even dog day afternoon has, has a pretty interesting style.
0: Yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting, interesting to see this screenplay Uh, done by someone who was going to be far more stylized because this this Ryan De Palma or somebody for example or even you know the David Fincher social network treatment sure sure different way of looking at this that would have it would have been a totally different movie i'm not necessarily sure it would have been worse or better but yeah i really like uh lumet's approach here and i and i think it works and you're right the the subtlety of of the sort of transition from naturalistic to commercialism especially by the end with maybe one of the pivot points being like we said the the, the ned Beatty scene which is just fire and <laughs> brimstone <Yes>. some <laughs> this this uh ancient god rising up and scaring the shit out of uh Howard Beale. I love
1: just the rows, the the rows of those incredible library I light, know. those little green library lights it's that so are just good. leading up. It's just, th- this movie was shot by Owen Roysman, who uh, who also shot uh, The French Connection. He shot The Exorcist. He shot uh, Tootsie, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. This guy was really rocking and rolling in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And, and the movie has a really interesting aesthetic to it.
0: Matt, are there any flaws in this movie?
1: <laughs> I mean... You know, is it too angry? <laughs> is, is it like alienatingly angry? I don't know. Is it a little too long? Um, is it Does it go a little too gleefully over the top when you start involving the, um, you'll have to pardon me, the, the, I can't remember what the name of the terrorist organization is. I should have written that down. The uh, ecumenical the liberation group or something? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, that stuff, that's really when the movie starts getting farcical. And honestly, that's when it kind of loses me a little tiny bit like when i find the movie most funny and most effective when it's kind of really sort of straddling that razor's edge yeah when it when it goes totally over the top and when they st- you know when the guys are firing guns into the ceiling of the safe house and stuff Mm-hmm. It's funny, but it's just it's a little much for me personally. I mean, I think it still works, and it's obviously setting up something that's gonna pay off at the end of the film and when the woman is like running around the house and screaming about you know making sure she gets her subsidiary, mm-hmm. uh, you know she gets her back yeah. end points or whatever that stuff is fun.
0: that stuff's fun. and I think you know I think the movie could have worked uh just fine without that entire subplot, but I think the key takeaway of you know everyone is for sale is 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 important to the movie and to the overall message here i don't know, do you think there's too much of a focus on the william holden character and his sort of domestic affairs i you know That's interesting. I, 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 I it seems a little um not antithetical but, but a little
1: for you who is the protagonist of this movie or is it a true three-headed protagonist beast
0: yeah i, I think the closest is Faye Dunaway because just because Howard Beale sort of becomes a more of a static character uh, by the end. He sort of you know loses it and then he's just this crazy evangelical preacher, right? Um but 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 I think technically I think he would just be a pure triptych, right? It
1: is. Uh Holden's the only one with an arc, right? I mean Faye Dunaway basically doesn't change. She just kinda gets worse. Peter Finch makes a change in terms of his belief structure but but as far as his approach is concerned that doesn't change he's a raving maniac from basically the beginning yeah i think holden is the only one with a real legitimate arc and i think that's why the domestic stuff is so important because mm-hmm. his relationship with beatrice strait of which they get one, one 5 minute scene for which she mm-hmm. won an oscar would seem i guess out of place Considering the trajectory of the story, except I think it's incredibly important to reinforce the fact that this guy is really, he's legitimately having a midlife crisis. Yeah, for a number of reasons. And this is how it's manifesting itself. And he is unfortunate enough to have run into this person who basically just weaponizes his midlife crisis. right? And basically feeds on him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, what he's doing is wrong. And he is obviously trivializing his relationship with his wife. But the movie goes to lengths to show you why a guy in his position would would um, gamble on his marriage in this way. Right. Because his best friend has gone up the deep end and he basically he he's kind of in a no country for old men situation, right? He no longer <laughs> yeah. recognizes he no longer recognizes the environment in which he spent his entire professional career. He he can't understand how all of this has gotten away from him. And mm-hmm. his his life's work has basically been taken away and is being commodified by mm-hmm. Faye Dunaway's character. I mean, she is literally a succubus who is, you know, she might be making him feel younger sexually, but she's She's taking his life's work away and she's completely marginalizing it.
0: Yeah, and it's sort of his dalliance with modernity, right? You know, just being with her in general and trying to understand the world as she sees it and the world as it's going to be. Um, but you're right I mean he, his, uh, he's the only one sort of at the beginning of the movie who's like, "When did we ever care about profits <laughs> for, for the newsroom like when did we, when did that become a thing?
1: It's got to be great to work in an industry where you're basically just expected to lose money every year right? He says our you know our news agents our, our news division always loses money, but it's expected to lose money and Robert Duval's like, hmm maybe it doesn't have to lose money. <laughs> <laughs> maybe,
0: maybe we should make the stockholders money yeah <laughs> you know Faye Dunaway has a bit of an arc, I suppose. He tries to... She dabbles with the idea of maybe some normalcy and maybe her soul can be, I guess, giving herself fully to the cynicism of of her job and her work by the end of it is sort of the the downward arc. Um,
1: I feel like Holden almost gives her an out. Like, there is a moment yeah, in, the, in exactly. the film where he yeah. basically says, come back from the dark side. We can be together. We can, we can work this out. We can work together on this. Like, you don't need to fall off into the abyss. I mean, I think he doesn't even use... I wrote a bunch of these uh, quotes down. Uh, Holden's character, uh, Max, Schumack, Max Schumacher, says to Diana Christensen, you need me. You need me badly because I'm your last contact with human reality. I love mm-hmm. you. And that painful, decaying love is the only thing between you and the shrieking nothingness you live the rest of the day. Yeah. <laughs> I love that term, <laughs> shrieking God. nothingness. Yeah. Um, so, he, And then she basically says, uh, I, I don't know how to live like that. I don't know how to be that person. So mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't be that for you. And she... Pretty much, just sells her soul to the de- to the devil by the end, right?
0: Yeah, and that's just—it's uh, one example of all these people who have done the same thing for for these cable news networks over the years, right? Or going into politics, or you know, fully buying into the capitalistic nature of whatever their work is. Um, and you know, it, it does feel like that was more of a extreme measure back then than it is now. It's sort of expected now that you'll just buy into whatever business practices or profitability schemes that, that that your chosen profession has has laid out for you. But I suspect that back then that was more of a non traditional decision, right? To, to to fully go into the in into the well for uh for, for whatever business you were in, right?
1: Yeah, especially for a female character, right? In mm-hmm. the seventies. I mean Sydney Sidney Lumet's on record is telling Faye Dunaway, that he really wanted her to lean into um, the sort of unsympathetic aspects of her character. Like he wanted her to play Diana Christensen without sympathy or vulnerability, quote unquote. And uh, she really does. I mean, it's a it's a fucking fearless performance. Uh, You know, she's kind of a horrible person. Yeah. She won an Oscar for playing this horrible person. You know, this is when she was really on a hot streak in the I think she did this movie right after Chinatown, right? But she's pretty incredible. I think she might even be top billed in this film because, uh, you know, William Holden was past his prime by this point. Peter Finch was not that well known in this country, honestly. He's a British actor who had spent a lot of his time in um, Australia. Mm-hmm. Wow. What, uh, fucking Faye Dunaway made four movies in 1974. Oh, okay. So Towering Inferno, which she did with William Holden, Three Days of the Condor, and then Network. So it goes Chinatown. Towering Inferno, Three Days of Condor, Network. Okay. Faye Dunaway was definitely the biggest star of the three at this point. You know, young, beautiful. Uh, I'm sorry, she was 35 at the time. Holden was 58, and Peter Finch was 59. And Peter Finch apparently had to fight very hard for this role because, Mm -hmm. as I said, he wasn't a big star in this country, and they were also worried uh, that he couldn't nail the American accent. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting because if you listen to his voice, and his voice is obviously so iconic because I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore, is one of the most famous lines in the history of cinema. It doesn't sound quite right, does it?
0: No, it doesn't Doesn't sound American. No, it doesn't.
1: It doesn't sound East Coast American. There's something about it just a little off, which I think is really interesting and effective because he's playing a newscaster, right? And a newscaster's diction is so important. That's such an important part of their personality and such an important part of their mystique on television. So the fact that it's just a little off... Makes it that much more memorable.
0: I, I've never been bothered by it. Obviously, I think no. I think it's.
1: I think it's effective.
0: Yeah, I think it works. Um, Robert Duvall was was known at this point. You know, he'd he'd done Godfather one and Godfather two. Sure. I, I'm not sure how big a star he was. You know, quote unquote, back in this time. But yeah, Faye Dunaway was was definitely the the, the biggest uh, biggest person in this cast.
1: And she and Finch both won Oscars for their respective performances, even though they don't. Actually, the, neither of those characters ever talks to the other. Yeah, that's crazy. They, they never. <laughs> and I was like, does that mean that Diana Christian is, is a ghost? Is is, uh, <laughs> is Howard Beale a ghost? What's going on? Yeah, they never they never once interact in the entire movie. Not, they never say anything to one another. Everything goes through Schumacher and and William William Holden was. You know, he was obviously a a Hollywood legend by this point, but he'd been on sort of a cold streak. Uh, As I said, he and Faye Dunaway were in the Towering Inferno together, and apparently they had a very contentious relationship on the set of that movie. They did not like each other very much. So as a result, going into this, the people were really apprehensive about what, because they were going to, you know, they had to do love scenes together. Mm -hmm. Uh, But apparently they managed to get get past their differences and had a pretty good working relationship. What do you think about that that romance, and uh, especially their quite memorable sex scene
0: well you know i i think it really works with faye dunaway's character she's kind of a robot almost you know sociopathic in some ways and she sort of lays it all out on the table during that uh you know the dinner restaurant scene right she's uh she's got daddy issues and she grew up idolizing this guy and that you know that's all i needed to hear it just made sense with her character and for him, I, you know, he sort of lays it out on the table, too. I, th- I thought the, the you know, Chaevsky's approach with, with him and him being sort of naked and upfront about, like, uh, you know, uh, this desire to be with this young, attractive woman is, I'm going to buy into it. I'm sorry. I, I just know myself, and I know I'm going to give it a go. I know it's wrong. I know I'm going to regret it, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to, what's the use in fighting it, right? Yeah for me the the most exciting you know parts of this movie are are about the media and about capitalism in general how how pressing it is today so the sort of love story stuff is not my favorite part of the movie but you know i think it still works really really well
1: yeah i think it's all very necessary um i really think that Chayefsky's, the organization involved like that he has such a grander vision for all this stuff and at the end of the day it really is a not just an interesting prospectus on the idea of media, but also a pretty fascinating character study and melodrama in its own way. I mean, there's some very, very moving scenes, not just between, uh, Beatrice Strait and Holden and Holden and Faye Dunaway, but you know, Robert Duvall and Faye Dunaway for that matter. I mean, there's, there's so many interesting, well-drawn characters in this and they're all given these incredible speeches to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's so fucking captivating. I mean, my my biggest issue with the um, with the stage adaptation was the fact that, like I said, they just leaned into the idea of Howard Beale and they made it much more farcical and they made it much more of a comedy. And they basically just gave it to Cranston and said, "Run with it." Mm-hmm. Um, and they take the most famous scene in the film, which is the uh, "I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore" scene, which comprises what. <sighs> Four minutes of screen time, maybe five minutes of screen time at the absolute most, from the from the minute that Howard Beale walks into the studio in his raincoat to when people are screaming uh, on their fire escapes. Yeah, the play takes that and gives it to Cranston, and he milks it for like eighteen minutes. Oh, <laughs> I mean, Jesus! The movie really. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I you know Brian Cranston's so fucking captivating. I watch him do anything, and he's wonderful, and he's probably going to win a Tony for it. But um, but I don't think I, I think Lee Hall, the the writer of that the the guy who adapted the play. Uh, who also wrote Rocket Man most recently, wrote Billy Elliot, has Cats coming out later this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he I think he kind of learned the wrong lessons, which is that he's thought, oh, the reason people love this, the reason people are fascinated is by just the mania of Howard Beale, when I really think that's just a component. That's just like one part of this larger, um, complicated puzzle that Chayefsky, Chayefsky has constructed in his genius, right?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think he's able to get away with the mania and the satire and the sort of hyperbolic farce of it all because the character motivations and arcs are so tight right like you understand where everyone's coming from while they're doing their ranting it's not just a you know these characters aren't just a vehicle for his sociological uh, you know uh, uh, viewpoints these characters are are naturally coming to these conclusions um and it just it just makes sense in the flow of the story so what you're saying about the play um also, makes sense, and it's a little disappointing, I suppose. I mean, I, I wouldn't expect anything more from the, the guy who fucking wrote cats. So. I didn't
1: I didn't mean to drag him over the coals like that. He doesn't need to catch. I'm shrapnel. so mad
0: about cats being a thing. Are Damn you <laughs>
1: um he has Rocket Man in the theaters right now. Rocket Man's a very interesting film, and so it's interesting the way the guy has diversified himself. and honestly, like, the the construction, the visual construction of the play network is really interesting because I've never seen a play um, sort of utilize so many different screens. I mean, it, it really it feels like you're sitting in the, the idea is that you're sitting in a television control room and no matter where you're sitting in the theater, you're getting this crazy, you're getting this barrage of media from all sides and there's screens everywhere and there's sound everywhere and there's flashing lights everywhere and there's a bar on stage where people are drinking and eating in the middle of the play and then uh, at one point, there's actors walking outside the theater, uh, performing an entire scene live, and, and they're walking through Times Square, and then they come around the corner and they walk into the theater. There, there's just a lot going on, and I think the direction of it, I think is I, Ivan Van Hove is the director's name, is really interesting. But I watched the film the night before I saw the play, and it was just I just had Peter Finch's voice ringing in my ears. Yeah, you know, we both said that our favorite scene is the the Ned Beatty, you have meddled with the primal forces of the universe, but the most famous one is obviously uh, I'm, "I'm mad as hell and I I'm not going to take it anymore," and it still is really goddamn effective. Like you still understand why Finch won himself a posthumous Oscar in 1977, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And he was the f- only he was the only performer to do that up until Heath Ledger. There you go. Yeah, Heath Ledger in 2009, I guess. So, uh, so yes. Yeah, so Finch won. Faye Dunaway won. Mm-hmm. Beatrice Straight won.
0: Paddy Chayefsky won.
1: Paddy Chayefsky won. Ned Beatty did not win. So there still has never been a film that won all four acting Oscars. This won three of the four. The only other film to do that was um, A Streetcar Named Desire. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the crazy years that we've talked about before where – the Best Picture category was just fucking stacked. Mm-hmm. I mean, four of the five films nominated for Best Picture in 1976 are on the AFI list. All the President's Men, we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Network, Taxi Driver, and then uh, you know what won in 1976?
0: Um, no, not off the top of my head, Matt. Rocky. You're really? Good. Oh, Rocky, that's yeah. right. <laughs> Which we're, uh, we'll be getting to soon.
1: We will. Do you think that Network is a better film than Rocky? I do. Do you think that All the President's Men is a better film than Rocky? Uh, I do. Do you think that Taxi Driver is a better film than Rocky?
0: I do. All right. We're really stacking the deck against Rocky. Um, then- <laughs> but I do love
1: Rocky. <laughs> yes, me too. Everybody does. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know if that's aged particularly well, but I, I can certainly understand why that would have been, you know, that crowd pleaser would have made a lot of sense as a consensus opinion, been, as opposed to, even though Network was critically acclaimed, I'm sure it probably was um, a little bit unprecedented as well. A little, a little harder sit, perhaps.
0: Um. All right, Matt. Anything you want to finish up with, or you want to talk about how this movie sort of coincides with our uh, next film on the list, Cabaret?
1: Yeah, I've been watching. Um, I've been watching uh, Fosse Verdon. Uh, it actually just finished up about a week ago. Uh, I don't know if it's a great miniseries, but it's a subject matter that I am just enamored with, and obviously love Michelle Williams and uh, Sam Rockwell, both of whom are were incredibly well cast, and it deals. A lot, not with their careers, but also with the career of Patty Chayefsky, because I hadn't realized that Chayefsky and Bob Fossey were actually really, really close friends. I did not know that. Bob Fosse tap danced at Patty Chayefsky's uh, funeral at Chayefsky's request. So they were extraordinarily close. I don't think Chayefsky has any official... Um, writing credits in any of Fosse's work. I'm sure he obviously was giving him a lot of notes. There's a scene in the miniseries where he's giving him notes about the script for All That Jazz, which is kind of interesting. You know, Chayefsky obviously was a genius, uh, is the only solo writer to ever win three Oscars. Uh, One of Woody Allen's writing Oscars was with his writing partner, Marshall Brickman. So Chayefsky has the distinction of being the only writer who's ever won three solo Oscars for Marty, The Hospital, and um, Network, of course. And, um, yeah, I just have been thinking about Shaevsky and, um, Bob Fosse and Neil Simon, who was also, who was also one of their friends and, uh, just thinking so much about Fosse's work throughout the 1970s and how he might be the most underrated director of the 1970s, because I think he made four stone cold masterpieces in the 1970s. And we're going to, uh, get into one of them on our next episode of, uh, AFI top 100 cabaret.
0: Yeah, so uh, stay tuned for that. That'll be number sixty-three. But uh, this has been AFI Top One Hundred Countdown Network. I'm uh, I'm not mad as hell anymore. I'm very happy that we, we we did this. I'm happy to revisit one of the one of the greatest uh, movies of all time. Really,
1: you've still meddled with the primal forces of the universe, but I'll I'll let it slide just
0: this time. I'm always meddling with those damn primal forces, Matt. You know that. <laughs> um, all right. Until next time. This has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye. How do you feel? We're as hell, and we're not this Ladies and gentlemen, the network news hour with Sybil the soothsayer.
1: <laughs> Jim Webbing, and here sits the Emma Struth Department.
0: Miss <laughs> Mata Hari and her skeletons in the closets. <laughs> Tonight, another segment of Vox Populi.
1: And starring the mad prophet of the
0: airways, Howard Diels.